Howdy. I'm Eric from Antioch, California. Hey, I'm Kevin from Victor, New York. I'm Luke from Seattle. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jordan Morris in for Jesse Thorne this week. I'm talking with Brett Gerwitz. He's a founding member of the punk band Bad Religion. Now, uh, I read somewhere that your dad gave you $1,000 as a loan to record that first Bad Religion LP. Yeah, uh, yeah. So that's kind of awesome and unexpected that he would be so supportive of you guys. You know, I've got a really cool dad, hmm. and he was an entrepreneur, and his dad was an entrepreneur, and my mom's dad was an entrepreneur. Like, it's sort of something that runs in our family. And I think to him that was like he was, he was proud of me for taking that initiative, and he wanted to help me. I think he thought that was my version of a lemonade stand. <laughs> it's bullseye. Coming up, my conversation with Brett Gerwitz. Not only is he a founding member of Bad Religion, he also owns one of the biggest punk labels around, Epitaph Records. The record label was central to the punk boom on modern rock radio in the 1990s. I asked him whether fame and money actually hurts punk music. Yes, it is the case. Next question. Okay, <laughs> yeah, but moving on. Later, Jesse Thorne will talk to the stand-up comedian Jimmy Pardo. This guy kills no matter what room he's in. Date nights in middle America? Sure. Alt-comedy hipsters in Los Angeles? Not a problem for him. How does he strike that balance? I don't know. I don't know. What he does know is that he's always wanted to be up on that stage. I guess I drew a picture like in third grade of, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up and... It was a picture of a spotlight on a microphone. Plus, Gretchen Lieberum and Maya Rudolph talk about the Prince movie they wish they'd made. They're so dedicated to the cult of Prince, they actually formed a Prince cover band. And, you think Superman can be kind of boring? I thought so too, until I read one specific comic book. I'll tell you which one. All that and more coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jordan Morris, in for Jesse Thorne. Brett Gerwitz is the guitarist and one of the founding members of Bad Religion. He's also the owner of the juggernaut of punk labels, Epitaph Records. Brett's been active in the punk scene for over 35 years, and Bad Religion is one of the best-selling punk bands of all time. They hit major commercial success with their 1994 album, Stranger Than Fiction, and the song, Infected. The band has just released a new album of Christmas music, which sounds like kind of a weird idea, but the sounds of Christmas music mesh surprisingly well with Bad Religion's tried-and-true formula. Here's a little bit of O Come Emmanuel off their new LP, Christmas Songs.
Brett Gerwitz. Welcome to Bullseye. Hi, thanks for having me here. Uh, for the folks at home, we were rocking out in the studio to uh, <laughs> Okam Emanuel. That's right. So, Brett, you grew up in Southern California in the uh, late 60s, early 70s. Uh, what kind of music was on around your house when you were growing up? Uh, you know, when I was growing up, we used to listen to a station uh, called 93KHJ, and it was an AM station here in L.A., and uh, I, I heard everything from the Beach Boys to the Beatles to the, you know, the bubblegum artists uh, from the days. It was a really, really fun station. I read somewhere that you say that the best show you ever went to is uh, Elton John's uh, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road tour. That was, yeah. Does that still stand? It still stands. It'll never be surpassed. I mean, it was the height of the glam era. I was 12 or 13 years old in 75. Um, I had discovered Elton John through the radio, I think, um, I think the song Honky Cat, I remember I, I heard the song, I made my mom take me to the store and buy it, and I fell in love with Elton John and uh, begged my parents to take me to that concert. It was at the Forum in L.A., and all I can say, it was like glam Beatlemania. You know, it was, it was sort of like for, for, for a young boy, it was like going to Oz or something. Uh, do you still enjoy Elton John? I, I do. In fact, I just met him recently for wow. the first time, so that was pretty uh, mind-blowing. Would, had he, is he a Bad Religion fan? I, I don't know if he's a fan, but he knows of us, and he's, uh, <laughs> he's very engaged in music. He's a cool dude. So when did you start making music yourself? Did you start with a guitar, or you know, did you have piano lessons or something more traditional? <laughs> I won't. I wouldn't call it making music, um, but uh, my first instrument was the accordion. My parents rented me an accordion, wow. gave me lessons. Um, but that, you know, I think it gave me a basic understanding of the keyboard, which is helpful, um, <laughs> because I used to bang on their piano all the time. So, when did the idea of playing in a band occur to you? It occurred to me uh, at some point in uh, in junior high school after I picked up my first guitar. Um, I was always passionate about music. Music was my version of Little League. But that's, you know, the, the second I started playing, I wanted to play with other people. I don't, I don't know why uh, I was driven to do that, but uh, it is more fun. So you always liked playing with a band. I guess there's, you know, kind of two kinds of beginning guitar players. There's the, you know, there's the jamming in the garage with, with your buddies kind, but then there's the kid who takes the guitar and goes up to their bedroom with like a spiral notebook and just, you know, jots down all their feelings you that was never appealing to you put it this way i don't like to practice <laughs> <laughs> i like to you know I, the second i learned uh, my first power chord it was all over you know it got got a got an amplifier and a power chord and i was off and running now how did you meet the other guys from bad religion they were uh kids who went to my high school and uh i had a best friend named tom and I had a friend named Jay who played drums, and I used to uh, mess around with him uh, playing music. And uh, as far as I knew, me and Jay were the only punk rockers in our school at that time. It was, I think it was 79, roughly. And uh, Tom uh, said to me, hey, you and Jay should meet these other two guys, uh, Greg and Jay, because um, they're punk rockers, too. And, you know, the rest is history. So when you were playing in your garage, were you imagining yourself in a big arena, or were you imagining yourself at, you know, CBGB's? I wasn't imagining myself anywhere other than in the garage. I mean, I didn't really have a have a shred of hope of, of getting beyond maybe a, a San Fernando Valley backyard party. 
<laughs> really, you know. To be was, fair, I mean that's a pretty prestigious gig. That was uh, that's what we aspired to. We didn't really believe anything could happen for us in music. What about that situation? Didn't seem like it could go anywhere. Well, because you got to understand, this is before the DIY movement. This was at a time when even the punk bands that we knew of were on major labels. The Sex Pistols and were on Warner Brothers. So, so were the Ramones. This is how remote the possibility of a punk band getting signed would have been back then. We were going to shows with 3,000 maniacal kids just bashing their heads into a band called TSOL, right? Not a single major label noticed that. <laughs> Not a single. They didn't get signed. They got signed to Posh Boy Records and then, I think, uh, Frontier Records. Can you imagine today a band selling out the Hollywood Palladium <laughs> in, in, you know, in, in 24 hours without getting a record deal? I mean, it's incomprehensible. I think record companies and A&R people didn't think it was music. Hmm. It's Bullseye. I'm Jordan Morris, in for Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Brett Gerwitz. He's a founding member of the punk band Bad Religion. He plays guitar and writes for the group. Brett is also the owner of the seminal punk record label, Epitaph. We're talking about his days in Southern California's early 80s punk scene. Bad Religion's first LP was released in 1982. Here's a track off that album called Damn to be Free. There was kind of a moment in punk rock where the kind of just frantic playing and kind of screaming of hardcore kind of started to turn into, you know, guys doing three-part harmonies and having, you know, really catchy hooks. Do you remember when that happened and why it happened? Well, I I think that we're quite often we're we're uh, cited as being to blame for that. Sure. <laughs> Meaning my band. Um Really, though, we were influenced very heavily by two bands who did that before us. One was the Dickies. The other one was the Adolescents, maybe uh, the, the greatest L.A. punk band. Who... Uh, had a lot of sort of surf punk influence in their in their music, but did wonderful harmonies in super aggressive music. They were they were my personal favorites. Yeah, what do you think the kind of punk faithful thought of that stuff was? That unpunked people? You know, at the time, not yet, because well, it's true. You know, the Ramones and the, the Sex Pistols and the Dead Boys didn't really have a lot of harmony. Uh, yet there were groups like the Buzzcocks who. We were doing albums like Singles Going Steady, where the stuff was quite poppy. You know, I, I don't think punk uh, in the beginning was an absence of melody. I think it was an absence of pretension, an absence of self-indulgence. 
it was don't bore us get to the chorus you know <laughs> it was let's cut all the fat off and and leave only meat on the bone you know uh, it was a return to the roots of rock although it wasn't buddy holly anymore it was sid vicious it's bullseye i'm jordan morris in for jesse thorne my guest is brett gerwitz who plays guitar for the band bad religion and owns the punk record label epitaph you and greg um share the songwriting duties in bad religion uh how does that relationship work well, you know, Greg and I have a great relationship, and in fact, it's, it might at this point be my oldest friendship. I mean, he's a guy, when, when we started in Bad Religion together, he was 15, you know, and I was 16 or 17. Mm-hmm. The way it works is he writes his songs, and I write my songs, and then we send them to each other or play them to each other if we're hanging out. Usually, we, you know, usually once we have a small batch of songs each, we get together and say, here's what I've got. And uh, then the other one goes, whoa, those are pretty good. Okay, here's what I've got. Then the other one says the same. And then we both go back to our respective homes and are inspired to write better songs because being naturally insecure, both of us then naturally think we have to write better so that our <laughs> songs aren't, aren't worse than the other guys. Can you tell the difference between your songs and Greg's songs? Like are the Brett songs different in any way than the Greg songs? Yeah, there are some differences. I mean it's pretty subtle. I don't think – you have to be a diehard fan to, to be able to tell. Greg's songs are slightly more journalistic. Mine are a little bit more prosaic. It's pretty subtle. It sounds like one guy writing. Uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah so I, I would be interested to hear what those bad religion seven-inch collectors on the message board say are the differences. Every time there's a new bad religion album out, actually, the fans have this huge debate, and it's always a fun part of the album release of you know who wrote which song. Because ever since 2000, Greg and I have stopped saying who wrote which song and we both share all our songs so before that we took credits for, for our own songs nice uh, yeah. what what led to that decision um just, just to a, rile up guys on the message board <laughs> no 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 just, you know just just because uh it, it just i think it was a way to diffuse and any competition that might come up mm-hmm. you know like um we both share every song so let's say uh we've got to pitch a song for a movie we've got to pitch a song for radio we're not going to ever have a tendency to want to take you know to choose one of my songs or one of his songs because we're both sharing all the songs after the break brett gerwitz will talk about how he reacted when punk his band and his label epitaph saw huge success in the 90s it's bullseye for maximumfun.org and npr hey it's me jesse MaxFunCon is MaximumFun.org's annual gathering of friends in the mountains above Los Angeles. Join us this spring for comedy, classes, talks, and parties with your new best pals. Tickets for the 2014 edition go on sale Friday, November 29th. And to be honest, we cannot add any more bed capacity, so expect it to sell out quick. Head to MaxFunCon.com the day after Thanksgiving to grab yours. It's Bullseye. I'm Jordan Morris, in for Jesse Thorne. My guest is Brett Gerwitz, who plays guitar for the band Bad Religion and owns the punk record label Epitaph. Bad Religion has had a productive year. They put out an album called True North in January. More recently, they finished up an album of Christmas music called Christmas Songs. So there was a there was a moment in the 90s when punk became really profitable. I mean, it was, you know... On the radio and playing in malls. I mean, this this is when I was growing up and going to the Warped Tour and things like that. Um, your band and your record label Epitaph were a huge part of that. Do you remember the first time 
you thought, oh, my gosh, this could be big? You know, it happened so fast that I didn't think that until it happened. It literally happened overnight. Hmm. I was chugging along, doing, you know, having a lot of fun, putting out records. And Epitaph Records was pretty uh, successful before everything broke wide open into the mainstream. We were selling about a million records a year, but it was across 10 different bands. But I had a bunch of bands selling 50 or 100,000 records. But then suddenly in, in the mid-90s at some point, Green Day and The Offspring, uh, Offspring were one of my bands and Green Day on, on uh, Warner, absolutely exploded. And, uh, you know, they both sold millions and millions of records. So, And that... It happened literally overnight. It was almost like, you know, what would happen in the 50s where a song would go on the radio and it would just catch fire. <laughs> that, that's sort of what happened with both those groups. So I guess the conventional wisdom would be that, you know, money and exposure would be kind of bad for punk rock artistically. Do you think that's the case? Yes, it is the case. <laughs> <laughs> Undeniably. Yeah. Um, I think uh, – um, Next question. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Moving on. Moving on. <laughs> yeah, um, it was never meant to be, uh, you know, punk rock was never meant to have a pension plan. <laughs> <laughs> so that's interesting. Do you think that if, do you think that if your band had blown up in the same way that, you know, Green Day or Offspring yeah, did? Yeah. And, and, you know, to be fair, you guys have had a bunch of like really, you know, popular radio hits that you'll see uh, that are yeah, on modern yeah. rock radio. Yeah. But do you think if you guys had become the Offspring, do you think the band would have gotten worse? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Probably. But look. <laughs> oh, God. So many people are going to be mad at me for saying this stuff. It doesn't always happen, you guys. Yeah. It's, there's, there's exceptions to every rule. There, you know, there are a lot of legendary artists who are still making great songs. But, you know, like I saw the, I saw the Rolling Stones recently at Staples Center, and they were amazing. They blew me away. But, you know, they're not going to write Get Off of My Cloud again. Hmm. They're just because they're, they're not the same people. You know, they're like, there's not a single cell in their body that was the same cell that existed back then in, in 1960, whatever, when that was written. They're different guys. You know, there's some continuity between those, the, who that one person is and who the new person is. But I just, you know, and I, I think that's okay. You know, I think sometimes what gets you to, to the place you are is the person you were. Now, there was a while where you stopped being in bad religion to concentrate on uh, running the record label. Mm -hmm. Um what was it like watching them continue to make music and tour? What what did that feel like? It was uh, it was interesting. You know, I, I, the first time I saw them live during that period was almost uh, a surreal experience. You know, because I I just finished you know seven years of touring relentlessly with them as a part of that unit, and I went to the show and I just sort of anonymously watched in the dark and. To be honest with you, it was a really uh, valuable and unique experience. It's something that I think most people who are in bands will never get because you never get to see yourself. I mean, I wasn't seeing myself, but I was, I was sort of seeing almost. I was seeing my band, you know, playing my songs, not too differently than they would if I had been with them. And I don't know. You know, you can never get that. I really enjoyed it, actually. It was really, <laughs> really a cool experience, enlightening. What, uh, what made you want to go back? You know, I miss them. They're, they're, like I said before, my oldest friends. Mm -hmm. um, I missed having them in my life. I also very much missed songwriting. And I think I, I'm, I think maybe when I came back, it's maybe when I wrote my best song. You know? do, 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 you, do you have a best song in mind when you say my best song? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think, uh, I think maybe my best song is Sorrow. Mm -hmm. 
and I wrote that after the hiatus, after coming back uh, with them. Tell us a little bit about that song. What's it about and what, what inspired you to write it? Sometimes I try to choose archetypal stories to be the, 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 uh, the foundation of a song because I feel like uh, they resonate with people. And I, so, and, and I also like songs that, that evoke yearning. And I think a lot of ad-religion songs do that. So I thought, what's the saddest thing I could possibly think of, you know? And, I, and uh, so that's what inspired it. And I went to the Old Testament, and that song was based on the story of Job. Bullseye. I'm Jordan Morris, in for Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Brett Gerwitz. He's a founding member of the punk band Bad Religion and the owner of Epitaph Records. Bad Religion has a new album of Christmas music called Christmas Songs. So you guys uh, recorded this album of Christmas music, and um, not only did you pick classic Christmas songs that everybody would know, but you picked a lot of like really distinctly religious songs. Yes. Um, kind of an unusual choice for a band who's, you know, who's one of their main things is being critical of organized religion. Yeah. Well, maybe so. But but if you think about it, I think that's the way to do it if you're a bad religion. I mean, we're, we've never been uh, a funny punk band, you know, and uh, we've always tried to be thoughtful and, and put a lot of thought into our lyrics and, and do things that are lasting. And these songs are monuments, you know. They're, uh, they're timeless songs. Obviously, the Christmas album is meant to be a satire. Mm-hmm. And I just think that the satire is more poignant uh, when we do the songs faithfully. Yeah. Um, how did you pick specifically the songs that you chose? Well, this is interesting. You know, um, Greg, our singer, got his start in music singing these, uh, singing hymns and church songs. He was um, in elementary school. Well, first of all, his family uh, had a tradition of, of singing Christmas songs and harmonizing together. And when he was a young boy in elementary school, he was identified as being a gifted singer. And his teachers encouraged him to sign up for state uh championships and contests and you know so he won uh, he won some uh, state championships in in choir um, and so he grew up on these songs and he knew them intimately Now, I, I know, I'm sure that putting Little Drummer Boy on the album is kind of a no-brainer because yeah. you have Brooks, who is one of the great rock drummers. The best. Talk about recording Little Drummer Boy and how you, how you kind of adapted it to Brooks' style. Greg put down the original demo for Drummer Boy, and what he did was he incorporated the Dead Kennedys' California Uberales. And my idea was to get Brooks in there and have him play the drum which is a snare, right? But then to lay 
snare after snare after snare in overdubs just make it bigger and bigger and bigger. So that, that's what we did. I think that there's about there's Brooks playing the part about eight times um, with microphones in various parts of the room. But I, it's interesting that you asked about that one because that's one of the ones that production-wise stands out a little bit. That's fit to give the king Uh, well, I think that's about all the time we have. Uh, Brett Gerwitz, thanks so much for being on Bullseye. Thank you very much. Brett Gerwitz. He's a founding member of the punk band Bad Religion and the owner of Epitaph Records. Bad Religion has a new album of Christmas music called Christmas Songs. It's Bullseye. I'm Jordan Morris, in for Jesse Thorne. Okay, so first off, I'm not suggesting, nor am I condoning you sneaking away from any boring upcoming holiday festivities to, I don't know, read a book or play a video game. But if you happen to find yourself in that position, we have Mark Frauenfelder of Boing Boing and the Gweek podcast here to recommend some of his favorite new time wasters. Hey, Mark, how you doing? I'm doing great, Jordan. Thank you. So, Mark, your first pick is Cookie Clicker. Uh, this is an online game, and you said it yourself that this looks like a dumb game, but is maybe something more. Uh, can you tell us about it? Yeah, it looks really dumb. So when you start it, you just see this image of a tasty-looking chocolate chip cookie, <laughs> and your natural inclination is to click on it to see what happens. And what does happen is that it shows that you have baked one cookie. And so you click it a few more times. Every time you click it, you get another cookie. And so how can this be fun? It sounds like a really dumb game. But after you click it for, I think, like 10 or 15 times, you can then click on a cursor that pops up, an image of a little cursor. And all of a sudden, you have a little white finger that is helping you click on the cookie. And if, as you get more cookies baked, you can then buy a grandma to help you make cookies. <laughs> And so you can have multiple grandmas making these cookies. And as you get more cookies produced by yourself, grandma, and cursor, you can start doing things like buying farms and factories. Eventually, you can buy portals, time machines to pull cookies in from the past, and antimatter condensers that convert antimatter into cookies. So I've been playing this now almost a week. And so far, I have baked 195 trillion cookies. Is and there an is there an end game? When have you baked enough cookies? I guess I, I have not hit an end game yet. I, I have uh, let's see. I have achievements here, and I've I've gotten seventy five out of ninety seven different achievements. And the achievements are: I have a hundred grandmas making cookies for me. I have uh, declared a covenant with the grand matriarchs because the grandmas. I don't want to give away too much, but the grandmas are not what they seem to be. And you have to do a lot of things to keep them under control and uh, protect your, your cache of cookies. So it turns out to be a strategy and management resource game that uh, I have ended up keeping my computer running overnight, which is a, a huge waste of energy. But I just can't <laughs> stop cookie production. It would, it would kill me to have to stop baking cookies. Well, and you would you would leave all those grandmas without anything to do. Exactly. Um, you are also recommending a new book that's out soon called The Geek's Guide to Dating by Eric Smith. Uh, is this book what it sounds like? 
It's exactly what it sounds like. And I guess I should start out by saying I am uh, very happily married for a long time. So I'm not the target uh, demographic for the book. However, I found it to be a lot of fun. And I think that the advice is actually pretty practical. Like geeks are very good at recalling minutiae. And so he talks about how to use that talent and how to not use the talent. For, for instance, you could use your, your ability uh, to recall minutiae to reference a surprising statistic to spark an interesting conversation, remember her birthday, favorite color, and other relationship-sustaining details, or connect with her on topics you're both interested in. You should not use the talent to spit out numbers and factoids like you're some kind of Vulcan robot hybrid <laughs> or show off your knowledge of obscure subjects she doesn't care about or prove that you're always right. So he's got a lot of different skills, uh, the skills and how to use your skills to your advantage and how not to use those skills. It's very funny, but at its core, it's really a practical guide to uh, relationships, especially for people who are geeky and and not necessarily that skilled in in social, uh, uh, the way that that non-geeks act socially. I'm I'm having a hard time now because I'm kind of a geek explaining it, but uh, <laughs> no, I think you've you've actually done a great job. Um, Mark Frauenfelder recommends the Geek's Guide to Dating out on December third, and the addictive online game Cookie Clicker. You can find a link to that on our website. You can find Mark at boingboing.net. Thanks a bunch, Mark. You bet. Thanks a lot, Jordan. It's Bullseye. I'm Jordan Morris, in for Jesse Thorne. We've started a new segment on the show recently. It's called I Wish I'd Made That. We're asking creative people about the things that inspire them, the things they love so much that they wish they'd made it themselves. Occasionally, artists go as far as to put themselves in their idol's shoes. That's certainly the case for Gretchen Lieberum and Maya Rudolph. They're in a band called Princess. Princess is a lifelong fantasy come to fruition of me and Gretchen's combined love for Prince Rogers Nelson. It's a Prince cover band. Gretchen and Maya get on stage and sing their hearts out to Prince's dirtiest songs. We caught up with Princess when they were performing at Tenacious D's Festival Supreme a couple of weeks ago. You know Maya Rudolph from her seven seasons on Saturday Night Live, or maybe from her role in the movie Bridesmaids. She and singer-songwriter Gretchen Lieberum became friends in college at UC Santa Cruz. They both had adored Prince since childhood and bonded. We were in college, and I went over to your house, and I spied your Prince paraphernalia. I was like, you like Prince? Prince's music-heavy drama Purple Rain is a particular highlight for them. The movie's directed by Albert Mignoli. They were actually still in grade school when they each saw it. Which was so inappropriate. I saw it, by the way, with my grandmother's friend took me to see Purple Rain. I know, so bad. So bad. I rem- it was yeah, it was intense. Grandmother's friend <laughs> Gretchen, I'm not going to take you, but my friend Dory is. Yeah, basically, I saw on. it with my father, which was equally inappropriate. Let's do a speed round of our favorite scenes. Should we do some lines? First stab, and he's really famous. A lot of bands make it after playing there. Is that what turns you on? It'd be nice for a change. 
Um, wait, what else? I love, we always quote um, at the end of Purple Rain when um, Prince runs off and Jill Jones is crying and she's holding that little dog. And then oh, yeah. it was, she was so moved by it. She says, hi. And Prince is like, hi. And you know in that moment that what he did really moved her. I gotta say, for reals, this is a for reals thing, that there are so few movies that I've ever seen since Purple Rain that do what it does emotionally with music. I can never do what Prince does. Like, there's just only one person that could have done exactly that. But he was so smart because he knew who he was while it was being created and was able to make a character that was a thinly veiled version of himself, but the version that he probably wanted people to see. I aspire to that. I find that incredibly fascinating. It will never happen, but because I won't, I won't be able to write those songs. But if I could, I would. That would be, that would be my dream. No need to worry. No need to cry. Maya Rudolph and Gretchen Lieberum on The Thing They Wish They'd Made, Prince's 1984 movie, Purple Rain. Maya and Gretchen pay tribute to their love of Prince in their cover band, Princess. I'm Jordan Morris, and you're listening to Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hello, my name is Graham Clark. And my name is Dave Shumka. Together we host a show called Stop Podcasting Yourself. We're from Canada. Oh, whoa, whoa. Wait, don't, don't hang up. No, don't hang up. <laughs> and every week we're uh, lucky enough to be joined by a, a guest, sometimes a comedian, or sometimes just somebody that we like. And uh, somebody probably you've never heard of. Mm-hmm. And but uh, trust us. If you followed us this far into the promo, just try it out. Please. <laughs> Do we sound too desperate? (laughs) Stop podcasting yourself on MaximumFun.org. Bullseye's on Twitter. Follow us online at Twitter.com slash Bullseye. It's Bullseye. I'm Jordan Morris, in for Jesse Thorne. Sprezzatura is an Italian word that I'm sure I'm mispronouncing. It was coined during the Renaissance. It means something like studied carelessness. It's artfulness so artful that it appears artless. Someone's so good at what they do that they can demonstrate it by being ragged around the edges. Anyone who has seen comedian Jimmy Pardo has seen Sprezzatura in action. Most comics have acts, an hour of bits, each one of which is a set of jokes. In a headlining set, though, Jimmy Pardo might do two or three real joke jokes. The rest is a dialogue with the audience, improvised but completely under Pardo's control. Jesse Thorne recently sat down with Jimmy Pardo. We're about to hear that conversation. But first, here's Pardo in his new stand-up album, Talking to a Guy in the Front Row. What is your name, sir? What is it? Chris? Chris? I'm saying that right, certainly. Chris. Short for Christopher? Love it. Love everything about it. Young guy, about 23, Chris? 32. Sweet Jesus, you look great. Thought you were 23 with that baby face. Mother of God, you look terrific. What, do you exfoliate? We use a lotion? What do you do? Am I wrong, Dan? Look at this face. 
looks like a baby. I, it's 23. I, I, I went high for humor. <laughs> thought he was going to say, the way you were acting, oh, I thought he was going to say 21 or something. You look great. What's your story? Use a scrub, that a boy, right? Some sort of... That a boy. I appreciate the acting, too. I'm... I like how you're selling it. You're close to the stage. Bring your improv skills. Right? That a boy. You took a couple of classes, went out of college. Never had a chance to use them. Ah, Pardo talks to me. I'm going to go into my bit. Good for you, Chris. Who are you here with? You married? You got a girlfriend? What's your story? Girlfriend right there behind you, sitting like you're on the log ride at the amusement park? And good for you, Chris, like a gentleman. Honey, I'm going to sit right in front of you and block your view if you're fine with that. Honey, you're the love of my life, but if there's any chance you could not see the show, that's what I'm looking for, right? I'll take you, but I'll be damn well you say it. Jimmy Pardo's new record is called Sprezzatura. He's also the host of the podcast Never Not Funny. Jimmy, welcome to Bullseye. Great to have you on the show. Uh, thanks for having me on. As I hear uh, that... Um, I, you know, it's all in the moment. So, you know, you're forming sentences as you go. I don't know if those last two sentences were sentences. They <laughs> sounded like I'll be. I think they were close enough to the sentences you were trying to make that somebody could make the sentence you were trying to make in their head via inference. I think it's one of those things. Yes, I agree with you. And, and if you're in a live setting, I think what he just, you know, your, your little brain comprehends it, and, and and you go, oh yeah, that's what he, that's what he said. But and then when you hear it back and you zabrut or film it. Uh, you, uh, Is that how you see your CD? I do. As a sort of Zapruder film of one of the great tragedies of our time. Well, I see this as a positive. I see this as something positive coming out of that day. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, thank you for having me on and uh, thank you for playing that clip. Uh, very funny stuff. When you first decided to step onto a stand-up comedy stage, did you write a bunch of jokes for yourself? Of course I did, yes. I wrote... Uh, uh, this would be – my very first time of doing stand-up was – I had just turned 21, so it was 1987. I did stand-up about three or four times, and uh, and just my life wasn't ready to do it yet. And then I really got back on board in October of 88. But when I went on stage at that time in maybe August of 87, July 28th is my birthday, so it was right after that. Um, yeah, I wrote out and, and rehearsed about 16 minutes of material that flew by in about four um, – some stuff that I, you know, bombed miserably, miserably that I think in retrospect was actually kind of funny. Like uh, one thing I said was, uh, how many people here like bowling? You know, round of applause. how many people don't like bowling? Round of applause. What does that tell you? <laughs> and that was it. Just late. Just, and then, you know, it, it got stared at because this was the late 80s where the comedy boom was happening. And why isn't this guy talking about socks and dryers? Um, you know, I, I'm not saying it's the most hysterical thing, but I mean, it's I think I think I can make that work today. But as an open micer scared, you know, shaking in Merrillville, Indiana, uh, it didn't work. Did you aspire to show business? Like, was show business always your objective? I think so. Uh, you know, a couple of things in life have, have proven that to be true. One was that there was a – I guess I drew a picture like in third grade of, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And it was a picture of a spotlight on a microphone, you know, a, stand, a microphone stand with a microphone in it. And that was in third grade. And I don't think I knew what stand-up comedy was. Maybe it was to be a singer. Maybe whatever it was. But it was a spotlight hitting a, a, a you know, a straight stand microphone uh, stand with a, with a mic in it. Did you admire comics uh, who didn't just do material? Or did you, want to be, uh, did you want to be a comic who did jokes? I think I wanted to be a comic who did jokes. As I, I've said before... As an open micer, I did a lot. Once I eventually, in, again, in October of 88, committed to 
this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go up two, three times a night. I'm going to you know, do my day job at MCA Records, and then I'm going to get in my car and, um, and hit the stages. Uh, I was a great open micer. I was a funny open micer. I took chances. I improvised. I was in the moment. Um, if a joke didn't work, uh, so what? I made it funny, uh, you know, in the moment. Um, in fact, I, I had the, the, the nickname at the time, the, uh, the comedy doctor, because if somebody did a bit that didn't work, I could afterwards go, hey, you know what might work? And, 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 and it was such that nobody was offended by that. That was the scene in Chicago, uh, at a place called the Roxy uh, specifically. Um, but then once I got paid, I thought, you know, I'm, I, I, now I have to be Paul Reiser. Now I have to be Jerry Seinfeld and who are great comedians, you know, and, and, you know, but I did, I wore the sport coat. I had the skinny tie. I had the, the, the sport coat sleeves rolled up I, the whole shot, uh, because I thought, well, now I got, now I, this isn't screwing around open mics. This is now this, you now you're a comedian. You're getting paid, take it seriously. And eventually then I've realized that's no, do what you think is funny and find your voice. And, uh, uh, and then, you know, you know, growing up, I idolized, uh, you know, Johnny Carson and, and Don Rickles and Groucho Marx and then. Uh, Richard Lewis, you know, and Robert Klein were the ones that, you know, uh, you know, Robert more structured than Richard. Uh, but seeing that stream of consciousness that, that Richard Lewis did, you know, that, that rang, you know, that sang to me. All right, let's do this. Let's talk about a couple of things. Nobody has asked me so far, uh, but I'll answer you guys. If push came to shove, I would probably describe this sweater as too tight. Um... <laughs> Yeah, it's not come up in conversation yet, but mark my word, it's going to at some point. And uh, I've already, I'm, I'm prepped. I'm ready to say, yeah, it is too tight. Um, and probably a little overeager, and the person's going to go, oh, that seems crazy, and then we'll move on from there. Uh, at any rate, I'm sucking in my gut, and uh, I've, got, uh, I've got spanks on. And, um, but not on the legs. My legs are fine. I cut the spanks off. Uh, I cut off. So we're cut off spanks. I got Daisy Duke spanks. And... Uh, I'm a hillbilly. I got hillbilly spanks. You ever listen to hillbilly spanks? He does mornings here at the country station. He is fantastic. I want to ask you this, and um, you you don't have to answer this if it's too personal, but you've talked a lot on your podcast, Never Not Funny, of which I am a big fan, about your your drinking when you were younger. Mm -hmm. Um, And comedy clubs are a place where it is, if you are a comic, it's really easy to drink. Um, and I wonder if there was a relationship in those years between your drinking and, um, you know, working in comedy clubs and being a comic. I, you know, I was only tipsy and or drunk five times before I went on stage. It was always after. I was never nervous to get on stage. I think it was dealing with people after the show or dealing with, the, you know, uh, you know, again, meeting women or hanging out. And, 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 I, and I felt like a grown-up. I felt like this is show business. This is what you do. You go up on stage and afterwards you get blotto. You know, you hang out and you get hammered. And, and at the, admittedly, I was in my young 20s, you know, 23 to, to like 27 or 28, 29, 30, whenever I stopped drinking. Um, and I never was, really was a big drinker before I did comedy. I mean, I drank like anybody else would do at a party or, uh, and you could get drunk sometimes or, you know, do, you know, just, but you know, I, I mean, I used to when I started comedy, I went on stage with a, with a soda, you know, and uh, and that was great. And then I would go, then I would leave or whatever I would do. I would, I, I don't. And then all of a sudden, I don't know. I just started when I started going on the road a lot. I just was very lonely and very, you know, scared, quite frankly, of what you know. What do you do after a show? You know, it's it's hard to go back to that hotel room. You know, uh, John Denver said uh, an amazing quote about cheating on his wife, but that, that's not. <laughs> the, I'm making the same comparison of. 
you know, it's hard to make love to a stadium full of people than go home alone. And in my case, I was working bad one-nighters and some decent comedy clubs from time to time when I was a heavy drinker. But it's hard to make a room full of people laugh. And, and you're, you know, you're the hero. Good nights, some bad nights. And then just go and sit in a hotel room. So I would the, – the, uh, the alternative in my dumb head was, oh, the headliners hanging out and drinking with the staff? Well, I'm going to do that. And then all of a sudden, you know, I became to rely on that. Like, oh, well, that's that's what you do. You do your show. You get drunk. You, you wake up. You go to lunch. You take a nap. You go to the show. You get drunk. And so that was, uh, you know, a daily – honestly, a daily routine. It's Bullseye, and I'm Jordan Morris. You're listening to Jesse Thorne's conversation with the stand-up comedian Jimmy Pardo. He hosts the podcast Never Not Funny. His new stand-up album is called Sprezzatura. The act that you do now and have done for the past, I, I don't know exactly how long, but certainly the past 10 years or so since the first time I, I saw you headline, um, is a, an act that, you know, w- will have a few bits in it, mm-hmm. um, but is mostly about you going out there and just talking about what's happening on stage at that second, uh, what you did earlier that day, mm-hmm. um, who is sitting in the first row of the audience. And um, asking, interviewing people in the front row, essentially. Well, it took time. You know, it, the, the flip happened. It was New Year's Eve week, 92 and in 93. And when uh, actually a comedian out of Detroit, her name was Gilda Hauser, uh, she said, something's different this week. You're different than previous times we've worked together. And I said, you know what? I think I'm just going up and talking. I think that's the difference. And she's like, that is the difference. That's You're doing that. And and she goes, and I have to be honest, it's 100,000 times funnier. And I had, man, did I have growing pains in the mid-90s. I had clubs didn't want me back. You know, those are the, those I do remember. Those are the times I do remember bombing. And, um, you know, one club, uh, there was a, a booker out of Michigan, Mark Colo. He worked for Funny Business. And there was a place called Mount Pleasant, Michigan, where I worked and bombed miserably. And the review was, we never want him back. And then here we are nine months later, and I went back, and the review was, I thought we told you we never want him back. Uh, like I bought, But this guy kept – he believed in me. He thought I was funny, so he kept putting me into these clubs and or these one-nighters even. And um, But I would bomb a lot finding this voice of, uh, that I'm doing now, finding this – you know, uh, really just finding me, finding Jimmy Pardo on stage and going up and being the same guy that I am off stage or you know, hanging around with on stage and not putting on a – you know, uh, now it's comedy time. Here's my comedy hat and my sport coat. And um, I never wore a hat. I should be very clear. When, when did you quit drinking? Uh, July uh, 18th, 1999. So, I mean, the, the reason that I keep asking you about your drinking is, is it feels like there's some kind of relationship between being comfortable enough in your own skin that you can go up on stage, which is a very heightened stakes situation. Mm-hmm as yourself and and the social part of drinking that you just described i you know i don't think i could do what i do on stage today if i was still drinking uh you know i think i i think i gotta be pretty clear and and, and crisp um you know i i do miss it in social functions you know i mean to deal with you know like even tonight i have to go to a school function for my son and you know, they're all going to be drinking. And I, you know, those are the times where I wish, you know what, I, 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 I could use some of that liquid personality, you know. Uh, Jimmy, but, I think your number one problem is a lack of personality, not I, enough personality. But I shut down at those events. I shut down at places like that. I, I don't know. I don't know how to 
Uh, you know what happened, Jesse? One time I went on a date with a girl, and and and, and it was a. She was taking night classes at college, and we took a we took a tour of the, the the mint or whatever where they make or store money in Chicago. And I went with her, and I we were the two of us were laughing, and I thought I was charming and fun. And the next day, I said, "Boy, that was fun." She goes, "Yeah, I got a lot of crap for it today. Uh, everyone in my class thought you were an a hole." I was like, "What?" They go, "Yeah, they thought you were obnoxious." And so that to this day it haunts me. That was like 1992, and that scenario haunts me to this day. Like. Oh, I thought I was being fun and charming, but I'm coming off obnoxious. So now, I just, if I'm not around people I know, I just shut down because I don't, I, I don't want people to think I'm obnoxious or that I'm quote unquote on. So I'd rather go the other way. But maybe if I had a little gigish in me, that was drink to the people listening. Um, <laughs> maybe maybe I would risk being obnoxious and then maybe be char- I don't know. Let's hear another clip from Jimmy Pardo's new CD, Sprezzatura. He's just been talking about his cardigan, a favorite subject of his, and uh, he gets in a conversation with an audience member. So, Dan, here's the deal. I'm wearing a cardigan. How many cardigans do you think I have, Dan? Four. Four? I told you I'm from television. Four? (laughs) It's an insult. It's it's like you didn't even try to guess, Dan. It's a horrible guess. Take another guess. I'll give you another shot. Uh, Fourteen. Fourteen? What am I doing? Fourteen? What am I, Johnny Cardigan? Who am I, Greg Barrett? Why would I have fourteen cardigans? No, I got about four. But the point is this, right? I was upset you got the number right, and I had to go another direction. I, in fairness to me, I've never done this quiz before. It was a very fun quiz, the Cardigan quiz, uh, which I'm going to buy that domain name uh, uh, on GoDaddy. Uh, uh, NNF two nine five is the best way to get yourself a domain name. <laughs> There's where I find the fans. There they are. And where are the non-fans? Oh, they went out there. All right, so. That's you giving the advertising promo code from your podcast at your live show, which is being taped for your CD. Yes. Uh, Now, in fairness, I did not know that would make the CD. I didn't know that that was the show that was going to be the CD. Um, But I guess it's just another example of what you were alluding to. It's like, I'll just talk about whatever's happening, whatever pops into my head. And that, made, at the moment, made me laugh to give the promo code, well, NNF295. Part of it, – it seems to me like part of uh, what makes your comedy magical is your commitment to saying whatever you are saying uh, with such conviction that it becomes a joke. I think so. <laughs> Whether or not it actually is a joke. And sometimes it's not. And, yeah. and, and by the way, and, and those times when it's not and I say it with a conviction, you know, 90 percent of the time they laugh. You know, I, my buddy Paul Boyev, who was my best friend in high school, he's now a doctor in Florida, we had the – we called it the, the theory of toast, that if you say it fast enough and with cadence, if you just say the word toast, people will laugh. And we would, you know, we would prove that like around high school and people would wonder why, why are these guys saying toast or, you know, whatever. But uh, I, still, I still believe in that, that, you know, so if I say something with that conviction and that, you know, that, that Jimmy Pardo, you know, staccato delivery – that 90% of the time they'll laugh. Now, when the 10%, now I know it's not a joke. I know it's just a statement. The 10% of the time where they don't laugh, my mind goes, well, what just happened? Why didn't they laugh? Then you go, well, you didn't say anything funny. You said, you said what you said comedically, but there's really nothing to laugh at. And then I have to, you know, uh, comprehend that in my head. And then, uh, boom, here comes some cardigan jokes. You have two jobs other than stand-up comedy. One of them is hosting your podcast, Never Not Funny. Yes. One of them is doing warm-up on Conan. Yes. Um, and the warm-up job is an, another job where 
someone approached you, they asked you for a meeting. Andy Richter was a friend of yours and mm-hmm. recommended you for this gig. Yes. And it, it's not something that um, – it's something that uh, not a lot of super credible comics do. Some do, but um, it's a well-paid but low-status job yes. on most shows. Um, when you had that meeting, what were you thinking going into that show? Exactly meeting? what you just said. Um, uh, you know, uh, decent pay, low status. I, I didn't move to L.A. to be somebody's warm-up act. I didn't move here to – but, you know, I was about to have a child or maybe I already had that uh, – yeah, I guess I had a child. Baby. Oh, we were about to buy a house. That that was what was happening. And I was like, would it be so bad to have a steady paycheck? Take the meeting. And first of all, it was The Tonight Show. And it was Conan O'Brien. Two things, you know, The Tonight Show, our dream to host. And how great would it be to work on it? Are you kidding me? And then Conan O'Brien, who I admired. Uh, so they want to take a meeting. I'll take the meeting. And I went there. And it was just my first thoughts were, you know, I'm not, I don't really want to do this. I don't want to be a warm-up act. I don't. Uh, and then I, I immediately got the feeling they don't want a warm-up act either. They don't want that guy. They don't want the guy throwing out candy and T-shirts and doing TV theme song sing-alongs. They want, uh, you know, they want somebody to come out and basically be an opening act, like a, in a concert. Come out and be funny, then get the hell out of the way and let the show happen. Uh, no commercial breaks, nothing. And, when, and once I got the feeling, and by the way, this is, I mean, at, at least at my level. I'm not Tom Hanks. I'm not these guys that are wanted. This was the first time I was wanted. You know, I've, I've auditioned and gotten gigs before. I've had deals before. But this was the first time that I felt like, oh, they want you. They're not, go- they're not looking elsewhere. You know, if you turn this down, they they may not know what to do, uh, may not know what to do tomorrow, and it felt great. It felt great to be wanted, and so we're like, you know what, I got to at least try this, and uh, you know, I've been there ever since. You know, we did the uh, the seven months uh, Tonight Show, then we were down for nine months, and then uh, you know, we've been on TBS for three years. You also did a lot of hosting for years as Los Angeles's quote unquote alternative comedy. Boom happened over the past whatever it, whatever it's been mm-hmm. twelve maybe even fifteen years, yeah probably fifteen now yeah um and you fit into that world in a very interesting way which is to say that there are a lot of comics there who wouldn't go and record their CD in Cincinnati mm-hmm. um but at the same time I you know there are there are a few more beloved comics in that scene than you um. Do you think that there's something about what you do that makes you able to do, you know, the Bob and Tom show, the most straight down the middle, um, you know, warm and friendly guys type radio program and do a fill a headlining set and kill in Cincinnati and also go do comedy bang bang in Los Angeles and then do a show at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater? You know, I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, it's, it's, it's a great question and it's one that I've I, I've often wondered. I mean, I, I want to say, you know, funny's funny, but we both know people that are hysterically funny that, as you say, could, couldn't go to Cincinnati. They would bomb like they've never bombed, but they can get a standing ovation at, at, at the UCB Theater. So I, I don't know. I, I guess I've just been lucky enough to straddle that you know, I've had a foot in both worlds for so long. You know, I can go to the improv one night and, you know, on the same night, I can go to the improv and do a 10-minute set in front of tourists and kill and then go and sit in front of a bunch of, you know, hipsters with handlebar mustaches and, you know, sitting uh, crisscross applesauce and, and kill with them. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. Jimmy, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. I am honored. Thank you. 
Jimmy Pardo, in conversation with Jesse Thorne. His new stand-up comedy album is called Sprezzatura. Every week, we close the show with a recommendation from our host called The Outshot. I'm the host this week, so I'm going to do The Outshot. Growing up, I never got what people liked about Superman. I was into the high drama of the uncanny X-Men. I loved the heavy metal style of Spawn. But Superman? Superman was just... boring. He's unconditionally virtuous. He always does the right thing. He's Ned Flanders with heat vision. But these days, I feel differently. The story that changed my tune was Superman for All Seasons by Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale. Superman stories tend to drop the blue guy into genre pieces. He's a sci-fi hero, he's a detective, sometimes he's meat-cuting in a romantic comedy. Superman for All Seasons is different. It's a simple coming-of-age story. Our hero grows up in Smallville, feeling different. Then he moves to the big city and tries to make a name for himself. Simple. Okay, I mean, there's also a nuclear submarine and flying robots and a villainous and a bustier who has a poison gun. It's still a comic book. But relatively speaking, simple. Classic. The art style owes a lot to Norman Rockwell. He's even thanked at the top of the book. And they're not using Rockwell for ironic effect. It's not David Lynch exposing the darkness behind America's white picket fences. They're using the Rockwell style to tell a story that's beautiful and emotional and, I mean this in the best possible way, all-American. There's one panel that made me get Superman in an instant after a lifetime of trying to figure out what the big deal was. A tornado hits Smallville, Supes saves the day, Ma and Pa Kent are singing his praises, and he says to them, I could have done more. That's what makes Superman interesting. He always thinks, I could have done more. And really, don't we all think that? Like, a lot? We've all got some kind of powers, time, money, skills, and I really think most of us try and use them for good. But no matter how much we're doing, there's always a voice telling us we should be volunteering or spending more time with our families or writing that screenplay or picking up that musical instrument we haven't touched since high school. It's not really a book for younger kids. It's light on action and maybe gets a little corny. Several scenes literally take place in a malt shop, but it's perfect for someone just finishing high school or maybe about to leave for college or starting a job. It drives home a wonderful point. We can behave virtuously, we can succeed, but we still might feel a little sad, and that's okay. That feeling of wanting to do more is part of what makes a hero. That's my outshot. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith, and our senior producer is Nick White. Our intern is Brian Bolt. Interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Bullseye's theme music is provided by The Go Team, thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries. If you have thoughts about the show, gosh, don't email me. Email jesse at jesse at maximumfun.org. You should also post to our forum at forum.maximumfun.org. Bullseye is looking for spring interns. If you live in Los Angeles and want to come be a part of the action, apply today. You can find more information at MaximumFun.org slash internships. And finally, if you like the show, tell a friend about it, won't you? I'm Jordan Morris, and it's been a damn pleasure. 
Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.